the sociology of work, work-life balance, and the greedy institution on this episode of Planet Outside. Hello, hi, welcome to Planet Outside, the official podcast of the Faculty of Arts and Science at the University of Toronto. My guest today is Scott Scheman, the chair of the Department of Sociology. Scott's work focuses on work, why we love our work, why we hate it, how our stress and our level of workplace engagement impacts not only our job performance, but also our personal lives. So whether you're at work, or at the cottage, or running errands, or on the treadmill at the gym, our conversation makes for pretty great listening, I think. This is Planet Artside, so stick around. There's a lot of interest in how workers um, feel about the quality of their experience and how um, how the things that they're doing in the workplace, how the relationships that they have in the workplace are connected to their sense of productivity, their well-being. And so there's been this focus on engaged workers, which in some ways has connections to someone who's enthusiastic about their work, somewhat, at least somewhat passionate about their work. There's a, there's a connection to um, the activities or the processes or the dynamics at work. So a uh, disengaged worker is someone who doesn't have those things, so they don't have meaningful connections, um, good relationships. Uh, or they don't really have a sense of feeling invested or committed to the work. Now, it's not just that people hate their jobs. It's people who are going to work that just don't feel quite as connected to the work they're doing or as appreciated at work or right. don't have the kind of freedoms that they wish they did at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I, very few people actually... Um, at least in our research, seem to express a real hatred of their work. If they hate their work, then they probably have selected out of it. <laughs> if they can't select out of it, then that's something that we like to call role captivity, which is a very serious stressor when you're in a role and you can't get out of it for a variety of reasons. But yeah, you know, I think to the extent that people desire positive attributes like a sense of autonomy, um, non-routine work as opposed to repetitive, boring. You know, it, think about it this way. If it's someone, someone's constantly looking at the clock, can't wait for the day to be over versus somebody who's so immersed in some kind of a flow, um, whether it's sales or whether it's producing some kind of, um, specific product or whether it's coming up with ideas or solutions. I think there's just this idea of being engaged, participating, kind of almost being fully present in what you're doing. And of course, that's not always going to be the case. There's always going to be sort of lulls. Or We all have our days where we want to go home early. We want to yeah. watch the clock. We're just not fully present exactly. in what we're doing. Yeah, but I think it's more of the chronic experience of that where um, time after time, day after day, it sort of becomes an issue. Now, it's been shown that, you know, employee disengagement costs somewhere around $500 billion a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just, you know, when we think of being disengaged at the office, we don't really perhaps think about the overall consequences right. of being disengaged. Right. Yeah, so that's a Gallup, I believe Gallup, um, the Gallup organization in their polling and their research suggests that. And, you know, there's some question about that, whether that's actually accurate, but I think there is there there is a strong sense 
in the research that certainly workers who feel disengaged um, or dissatisfied, there's low, low morale, there's low productivity, there's more, um, there's more of a risk of turnover or a desire to leave. And again, if you kind of, if you're, if your goal is to, if you're an employer or an organization, your, your main goal is to have sort of workers who are fully in, really committed and enjoying their work to the extent that's possible. Um, even during those times when there's a lot of, say, more adversities or, or thorny problems that people don't sort of have this blah sense about their work or this, you know, um, that it's a, a slog that isn't really enjoyable in any sense. So, yeah, it's, it, it does. I think the costs in terms are related to what people might think of as productivity or, or um People aren't really realizing their full potential or the jobs aren't challenging them in a way that allows them to tap into that potential. And I think it's very easy for employers and organizations to sort of fall into that sort of um, mindset or, or kind of um, set of conditions. So you have to really, the organizations themselves have to be mindful of how they're structuring or organizing the work and how especially supervisors there's a lot of talk about supervisors or managers really being aware of 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 those things of course they have their own stressors and engagement as well yeah i think the research shows us like 80 percent of managers aren't satisfied or engaged at at work some of those numbers probably i've I've seen those too and some of those are hard to believe it really depends on how they're measured but i think um i would say that a lot of that probably relates to um rather than disengagement maybe in some ways almost like role overload or a lot of stress where it's really hard for for managers or supervisors to really kind of get clarity or focus on what matters because they're doing so much and so a lot of these kinds of things come together yep and you've looked at things like what's called the 4c blueprint Mm -hmm. which is control challenge connection and commitment which Mm -hmm. really is a, a, a framework for understanding levels of engagement and are and at the workplace that's what i try to come up with is and, and you know this basically take what other people have done in different domains for example describing people's sense of control over the work so the extent that they have autonomy the extent that they have um freedom from excessive supervision or what you what you might think of as micromanagement you know or um people sort of hovering, managers hovering and really keeping track. So a sense of control over the processes and outcomes in the work, um, to the ex- again, to the extent that that's possible. Not all jobs are c- created the same way. So in some ways, you know, one person's control isn't feasible in another kind of work. Same thing with commitment. I think that's a key idea. I mean, if you're, if you're not fully committed, you're probably not going to be as seen as an ideal worker by the organization. And so there's this element of loyalty um, and what loyalty means for what you're willing to put into the work. But also, um, that's also related to these other factors like connection. So the kinds of relationships people people have at work matter so much. One of the the key findings that really cuts across the research literature is the importance of social support. Um, informational support, emotional support. I mean, before we're workers, before we are workers, and before we are our job titles, we're human beings. And I think that 
that need for connection again while it's not the same there's no one size that fits all here i think there is an underlying current where when you ask people about what's the best it's one of the best things about their jobs they tell you um that it's the relationships that they have with people and also when people talk about the stressors they often also talk about the relationships right <laughs> so you you sort of get both you know um and often the good ones go alongside the bad ones and so um, what you want in a workplace ideally is obviously a balance of more positive, but those supportive relationships really go a long way for helping people deal with um, excessive pressures, demands. They also allow, this is an important element, they also allow workers to talk about problems, say, in, um, for example, managing work, competing work and family demands. And so if there's the sense that there's a supportive environment around that, that maybe you can, you can creatively come up with alternative arrangements where the work still gets done and, uh, but it's not at the expense of say family roles or, um, or even leisure, which is so important, you know, fitness and so forth. So to the extent that there's smart flexibility in the timing and the location of work, often that comes out of conversations with people at work um, where those kinds of arrangements need to be negotiated. So I, that's part of connection in some way because you need to have that comfort and trust that you can tell. You could tell a supervisor or a manager about those things and not be penalized. Right, right. You know? Well, you're talking about that whole work-life balance, which is something you know we talk about a lot. And we, yeah. we, we give words to it, whether we actually think seriously about it or, or do things to affect change to that balance. You've called, you know, that struggle the battle of the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> it's so popular, that phrase, you know, the, the balance, the work-family balance. Some people really don't like the word balance because it implies, I guess, some, I don't know, some kind of seesaw or some, you know, works on one side and then family or life is on the other and they're supposed to balance out. But how does that work when my phone at home goes off and it's an email or... <laughs> it doesn't you know, work. work it's, it's hard to... Work isn't just at work anymore. Yeah, so the sociologist Louis Kozer called this work the greedy institution. And he, I think that was in the 70s before we had all these gadgets and you know people were still using, I don't floppy disks. I don't know what they were using, <laughs> if they were even using those. Um, but yeah, it's really hard to to and it's a real challenge to navigate that kind of balance or even achieve remote levels of balance when you have the technologies the communication technologies that allow the demands to flow 24 7 so email is essentially one of the worst culprits i guess you could say for allowing demands to get at you anywhere at any time as soon as you open up and open it up and see it right it's so there's agency on your end where you're the one opening it up like i've i don't know how many times i've opened up an email at like after 10 p.m right before trying to go to bed right and it's somewhat negative or it's somewhat stressful because it implies a deadline or a demand and i should have just waited until the next morning because there's nothing i'm really going to do that night right but i think we're almost kind of a, not addicted but we're sort of almost caught up in this um constant sense of having to stay connected and it's funny i don't know where that came from because but then the reality is it probably unless you're really really good at compartmentalizing things 
psychologically or cognitively, you're going to think about that. And I know it definitely has affected my sleep at various nights, especially if it contains something, say, that's somewhat negative from a colleague, right? Where, you know, somebody says something in an email they didn't really... And suddenly they've got that headspace, that real estate in your mind. Right, right. And so also, I mean, back to the idea of balance, though, people have talked more about work-life fit. And it's really trying to, you know, if you think about different roles and how they fit together, you can't be in two places at one time. We know that multitasking is not beneficial, even though people will swear by it. Um, our research shows that when people try to do work and family-related activities at the same time, uh, especially at home, they're just not fully engaged. They're not fully mindful um, in either role. So while they think, oh, well, I, you know, and again, often it comes out of a need to um, satisfy competing demands. It really doesn't seem to be beneficial for people. But often people will say, well, I need to do that in order to get things done. Um, so that's something to reflect on, because if you're not really fully mindful and present, you're probably making more mistakes. You're not listening as well or as clearly. And... And so there's all that dynamic related to like family members or kids or, or spouses or partners who recognize that you're fully, you're not fully present. But then on the other side of that is also like if your manager or supervisor could see you doing that work and see that you're not fully engaged either, even though you're doing work, it's still problematic. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So, um, so I think, I think it's really become a challenge to, for a lot of people to find that fit. And then that's where you get into this more discussions about flexibility and all the upsides and downsides of flexibility, which is something we could talk about. Well, let's talk about that. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's something I've really been fascinated in is um, the, the challenges related to things like schedule control. So some people really love the idea that they can control their schedules, right? When they start work, when they finish work, that's, um, it's my favorite thing. That's right. When I show up at work in the morning and it's <laughs> 9.30 instead of 8.45. Right. And I'm the only one in the office that does that. Right. I'm very fortunate that my bosses who are listening, yes. you know, have given me the flexibility. I come in a little bit later. I stay later. It's, But it makes it works for my schedule. It works. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm a, a better employee, you know, mm-hmm. after 10 a.m. than, you know, that first hour of the day, you're not going to get much good out of me. Right. Right. So that they appreciate that. Mm-hmm. The work gets done. I feel better about it. They feel better because they're getting the work, I, I hope, right. that they're expecting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think that's always the question. It's like, what are people expecting? What are they expecting about um, quality? I mean, does quality mean rig- rig- rigidity around like when people are starting and when they're finishing or even where they are? Like, do you, do you need to see kind of cars in the parking lot? here Um, do you need to see offices open Um, I think there's some suggestion that you know if it's a five-day work week right like being present at least part of the week is is beneficial as a tipping point right and I'm not quite sure what it is exactly but having people around at least some of the time is good so that you get those kinds of connections well yeah you you said you said you know people like their job primarily because of the relationships they have there. And they mm-hmm. dislike their job primarily because of the relationships they have there. So right. you have to have at least a little bit of that human interaction yeah. with your colleagues. And some people will respond to that by saying, well, it's so individual. Doesn't it depend on what the person wants? Like if I don't like people, I'd rather work at home. But I think at the end of the day, it does. there is 
it's not just about the worker though it's also about like if you're working in an environment where ideas are important new ideas innovations we often get those things by interactions with people and uh or at least being able to communicate our own ideas with on other individuals and get critical feedback and so forth now but the thing about timing is important because what we've found though is that at some level of flexibility you do start to see a bit more of blurring the boundaries between work and non-work life so like when you if you start later you end up going later and then into the safe again if you're talking about a 40 or you know full-time work yeah but often what ends up happening is people talk about 45 50 55 60 again if they're not if they're not necessarily on a time clock like a punch in punch mm -hmm. out but they're more say it's professional or it's more like salaried where well you're working 60 hours this week because we have deadlines and so you're going to work wherever we need you to work so the flexibility idea is good in some ways because you can work at home and you have schedule flexibility about sort of when you're starting and stopping but then we've found that some people have difficulty stopping in other words the, the scheduling essentially bleeds or i don't know we've called it sort of like this idea of work creep where work if you think of a boundary or a border between work and the rest of your life, it just starts to get really fuzzy. And again, for some people, that's not a problem. But if you're, if you have young kid, it usually comes up to the idea of if you have other demands that are related to non-work roles, what happens? And for some people, um, if they've got young kids to take care of in particular, uh, it becomes a real issue. And that's where you see people making trade-offs. And often it tends to be still more women more than men because they end up being sort of the, the primary um, care provider. So, yeah, there's a whole set of dynamics that are sort of embedded in this idea of, um, you know, what it means to be a, an ideal worker and how that fits to how that fits into uh, or how that fits alongside the other important roles that you have in your life. And some people just become so absorbed in work that the other roles just fall by the wayside. Yeah, we call those people uh, workaholics. Yeah. But that seems like uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a misnomer. Yeah. I've never been fond of that because it implies, I think workaholic, it, it's tricky because I, I think when you're thinking about what's like an alcoholic or somebody who's, it implies like a level of, of the problem that the individual has, you know, it's something the individual has that it's almost like a pathology, right? And um, in some instances, some people are working so much because of the, the structure and the organization of the work itself. There's, again, there's always an issue of individual agency, where by that I mean people are choosing certain kinds of arrangements. But then once people make choices um, and they're in those roles, then also it becomes important to look at how work is organized and wor how work is structured and what the norms are. Actually, one of the things that we find that's really fascinating is the biggest threat to the efficacy of schedule control is if it occurs in a context where the norms are you will work wherever we want you to work and whenever we want you to work. So it's sort of this mixed message of um, you're expected to take work outside of regular normal working hours and do it if it's needed 
And I mean, I guess this sort of makes sense in some ways, but if you think about it, that dynamic really undermines this whole idea of control because workplaces are giving you flexibility, but then in a way, sometimes hidden in that is the possibility that they'll use that flexibility to extract more labor out of you. Right. And, you know, and, and not necessarily increase your pay. So it gets really, it gets really tricky, that dynamic. And, um, and often, especially when times are tight and when the job market's really um, scary or precarious for some people, where there's a lot of unemployment, where there's insecurity, people are much more willing to kind of give in to those greedy impulses at work or of the workplace because they don't want to lose their jobs. So it's, it's yeah, it's fascinating. Has it changed? Has, has work and work engagement changed, say, from the... 70s the 50s like is there a, a sense that work creep as you mentioned is there's more work creep now than there has been ever before because of electronics and email and ipads yeah so the the you know it's always the the change question always comes up and it and it's you almost have to break it down into different pieces so the communication technologies part has definitely changed right like i mean you know these little devices that we have <laughs> walking around campus constantly checking email right i'm not physically located in my office but i'm still working i'm working as i'm walking which isn't always a good idea because i'm pretty clumsy so i've <laughs> walked into signs sometimes but you know um uh so that part's definitely changed in the sense that there is there there is a new and increasingly expanding um, relationship that we have with these devices that allows us to do work or be engaged or connected to work anytime in anywhere. Right? You can be at a cafe and you could be you know editing or doing a variety of things. The other thing that's changed, though, and it's much more structural is since, you know, you brought up the 50s and the 60s and so forth. If you think back to um, the, the, the gendered nature of the workforce and women's entry uh, quite rapidly as a greater proportion of the total workforce and what's that meant for dual household, um, dual earner households where you have men and women, um, at least in the traditional sense, kind of now both working and doing paid work outside the home but then still having children and then so that the the nature of the household labor also becomes a question the child care i mean the work has to get done and if you're not wealthy enough to be outsourcing that in other in other words having like hired help um someone still has to do that that work it still has to get done and it's not just physical work it's often also like emotional work or um cognitive work helping your kids with homework and so forth i mean it sounds it sounds so basic but if you're working if you're if you're in a very stressful kind of work role and then you have to, you know it's that whole second shift idea that arlie hochschild talked about the sociologist um coming home and having then to do that other work so that's changed a lot and then that requires a lot more negotiation within couples and in households on how things get divided and also you know who, who who's going to be the one that's actually able to devote more energy to the work role in their career and who's maybe going to have to dial that back or, or cut back and make sacrifices and then what are the consequences of that so those kinds of changes have definitely occurred and i think we're you see a lot more um coverage in the media about things like opting out or 
you know, Marianne Slaughter, I believe it was, wrote a piece in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, can women really have it all or why women can have it all? I can't re- recall the exact It's type. always one of those two. It's right things. of those things. Yeah, it's never why men, you know, it's about men. It's about whether women can, right? Because um, the, the questions she was posing and a lot of researchers pose is how are these competing um, time demands and competing pressures related to the work role and the family role, how do those play out in individual lives? And they're often very gendered, right? Because of the traditional norms around who's caring for children, who's doing household activities or, or tasks. So yeah, those kinds of, the, the social changes are fascinating. Um, and in some ways they kind of connect in complicated ways because the communication technologies allow uh, individuals to work at home, but if they're working at home, are they then um, also trying to still manage manage their household activities while they're working? And so then that raises a whole new set of questions about boundaries and and um, effectiveness. And again, I keep using the ideal worker idea, but the ideal worker is somebody who's fully committed and engaged to work and um, who's really devoted and uh, prioritizes work over all else. And so in some ways, could can you be an ideal worker and still be doing work at home that's related to um, caring for a parent or, or you, know, you know what I'm getting? If you're pulled in different directions, right? are you effective in either role? And so those are challenges. I think people struggle with those a lot more. And so I think what's changed is the, the discourse around that struggle and that's why I say like work family work life or work family balance or fit is is kind of the challenge now because of these social changes technological changes so what can we take away from your research in a non-academic way in a very practical way as workers ourselves mm-hmm take long vacations <laughs> no even that's a problem though that's the thing i mean trying to take a vacation um i'd say that oddly enough we started with the discussion about disengaged workers i would say that the one the one thing we sort of come back to is disengagement in a different way um that it's really really important for workers to be able to make sure that they do keep in check the greedy impulses of work. And so it's sometimes really hard again because it's very difficult if um, you know, we're relying on work as a as a as a means for income and so forth. So you, you can only do so much. Some people can only do so much around those things. But I think it's really important to make sure that people stay mindful about what really matters and clear about their priorities. And I think that's kind of coming back where people are saying, look, I'm on vacation. I'm not I'm not going to respond while I'm away. <laughs> this is very hard. I try this each time I go away and it inevitably in this role now that I'm in, it's almost impossible to do because sure enough, there's always some kind of crisis. But it does make you think what, what happened in the days before we had all these devices where, or, you know, where you weren't checking email, it just waited until you got back, right? But now things can't wait. So I think the practical takeaway for me is make sure that um, people to the extent that it's possible to be mindful of the facts related to what matters for your well-being. So the quality of your working life and the quality of your non-working life both matter and make sure that those 
your sense of the priorities that are related to both are really clear because what ends up happening for a lot of people is work ends up sort of being dominant and 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 for something like vacation is a really critical point we need that kind of disengagement people talk about recharging being refreshed when they come back and uh the challenges around vacations are really fascinating because it often there's a lot of pre-vacation angst and then there's because they know you know you're going away and you have to set up a lot of things i do more work in the the week before i go on vacation just so that i can <laughs> feel comfortable going on vacation yeah and then i come back and then there's all that work to catch up on from right. the week that i was off on vacation right that's the whole thing the, the issue and i mean i guess you know not to sound like it's complaining but it is sort of there's work intensive the work still has to get done so there's work intensification in some ways beforehand and then there's catching up afterwards and so in some ways um there is this kind of vacation angst you know because of the pressures and the demands and i think that's really what it comes down to the takeaway is we can't really escape the demands of work but it's really being mindful of how how they flow through our lives and how they shape the way we're structuring our time and they're structuring our capacity for leisure and connections outside of the workforce or outside of the workplace. Now, I'm probably not the first to point out the irony that your work is studying work. <laughs> yes, and stress. <laughs> and I have both. <laughs> but where does, the, where does your fascination, your interest in, in work come from? How do you decide, you know what, I'm going to study work? Yeah. Well, so my 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 main area really revolves around understanding stress and understanding health and well-being and sort of and also sort of a social psychology of inequality and so work is such a critical part of everyday life that it really structures our lives it structures our daily lives and you know if you're working full-time or more than full-time a lot of people work very long hours that's how we're spending a significant portion of our lives. And so the quality of that role, the quality of the environment, the quality of the work context really shapes not just the exposures to stressors, but how we respond or react, how we cope with those stressors, and ultimately health and well-being, including relationships. So I've just sort of become fascinated with questions related to work that are often counterintuitive. So for example, I've, I'm really interested in this notion of stress of higher status um, in the workforce. And again, um, it, so, I, so the closer you are to the, to the top, the more stress you have? No, that's what people think. Okay. <laughs> so it's probably the way that, so it's stress of higher status and the higher part is important because it's not high. Like we're not talking about how tough Donald Trump has it, for example. Okay, you know? well that's good. I mean, he has it tough in some, way, <laughs> in some ways, but that's his own fault. Um, but no, what it, so for example, um, let's see if I can explain this in a simple way. When people, when when people experience increases in any form of status or um, uh, things like, say, more job authority, where suddenly you went from having no authority 
or control over the direction or outcomes of other people's work to some, at least some control. You might even think of these as maybe middle managers or something. You see a bump up in pressures, responsibilities um, that isn't necessarily, it's not necessarily bad, but the downsides associated with that are often clearly linked to things like more conflict in the workplace. And so you're responsible for things that are often still out of your control because they're controlled by somebody above you. So you have higher status, you have higher status than you did before or relative to other people, but you also have increased exposures to things that we know are clearly not good for well-being, not good for sleep. They sort of, if you think about it, they don't, they're people, People aren't miserable, but they're just less satisfied. They sleep a little bit less better, you know, a little bit less, um, uh, their sleep is less quality, poorer quality. Maybe they don't get as much as they would were it not for that bump up. So it's the same thing with income. So for example, um, if you imagine the downs, if there are any downsides associated with higher levels of income, it's usually related to the pain that's associated with getting more of that income. And by that, I mean more responsibilities, more pressures, more work to family conflict, especially, and the longer hours that go with it. So that's sort of the stress of higher status idea. And the notion is that were it not for those um, exposures to stressors, you'd see actually even more health disparities or more differences in well-being across the socioeconomic spectrum. Does that make sense? So it kind sure. of, it almost kind of compresses. And again, the, the one takeaway that's really important here is that I'm not talking about the top 1% or the top, you know, it's almost more of like a, the stress through the middle range, the stress through the middle upper range. And we hear people talk about this all the time, like the middle class squeeze, or why is it that subjective levels of happiness seem to level off at about 75,000 in income? Well, in other words, why doesn't happiness just keep going up and up and up? And one thesis or one idea is, well, people, once they have what they need, they're satisfied. But another thesis, and this is one that I've been um, sort of pursuing and questioning, is actually right at that point, you see certain stressors go up that you didn't see as much at the lower levels. And those stressors are excessive time pressure, excessive quantitative pressure at work, like workload and how that relates to work family conflict, work interfering with family, and then also longer hours. And so, you know, in some ways, even if you have more control over your time, you're putting in more time. So it's sort of like offsetting effects. So yeah, it's a complicated set of ideas, but it does, it gets back to why I got into this in the first place, which is the some of those patterns are a bit while they're intuitive, while they make sense, and people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense, they're also counterintuitive because the general thesis is that as people move up the socioeconomic ladder, life should improve. And it generally does, for sure, there's no question, but this is a theory that explains why it's not even better, why it's not even, you know, why, why those increases in money or authority don't pay off even more. Right. So people who make, say, $100,000 should have a certain amount of happiness. It would stand to reason if you had a million dollars, you should be exponentially happier <laughs> yes. than that person and so on and so yeah. forth. But yeah, what yeah. you're saying is it, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of, the, part of the takeaway is there are different kinds of stressors across 
the socioeconomic spectrum. So there's no question, you know, this struck me one year when I was in San Francisco during my sabbatical and San Francisco has a real, it's got so much wealth, so expensive, but it also has a very visible homeless population. So many people just down and out, really, really struggling. It's almost like so, it's almost like two different, completely different universes. And so it's almost like to talk about them along a continuum doesn't even really make sense. It's almost like you have to say, you know, there's no question that the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum in that context, really, really, their life chances are so poor, their quality of life, their, you know, it's just so, it's so different. But then once you move past that, beyond a certain point of earnings and education and, and, and socioeconomic status, especially in the workplace as well, then you, you do discover a whole series of stress exposures that are quite different. And it's along those points where you see, oh yeah, there's more pressure here. There's more work-family conflict. And those things we know take a toll on people. And so it's almost like the mapping of those stressors tells us something about the, the socioeconomic mapping of health that's really important above and beyond the devastating effects of poverty. So it's almost like a, it's almost like the the storyline about poverty is so important, but then there's this other storyline about sort of middle to middle upper socioeconomic status and stress that really is quite fascinating as well. And that's where a lot of people are saying things like, "Well, I just I'm making more, but I don't feel any better about it." Yeah. So it's it's complicated, but that's something that I've really been fascinated in and um, trying to pursue more in my own work. I've always been fascinated with the counterintuitive stuff, like when people say, oh, flexibility is really good for people. or When researchers say flexibility should pay off and it doesn't, and or when my research finds that it doesn't, and by pay off, I mean like flexibility should be related to better productivity or flexibility should be related to more worker morale or higher, you know, happiness. Right. And when it doesn't, I'm fascinated by those questions because I think that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing is pressing on flexibility sounds great, but are there certain conditions under which the way society is set up or the way organizations are set up, they actually undermine their own interest in improving well-being by changing the nature of flexibility. Is that make like mm -hmm. flexibility with a price? Like flexibility comes with, okay, we're giving you flexibility, but then we have these expectations or we have these, yeah, expectations is probably the best word for it. We have these expectations that the work will still get done or will always get done. And so that means if we need you on the weekend, we need you on the weekend. And so it just, the flexibility like in a way gives you more control and at the same time, almost kind of gives you less. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm still, you know, and it's it's harder to it's hard to study that because I think people want to buy into like, oh, well, they're giving me control at work, so it should be good, right? You know, or they're giving me more money, they're giving me a raise. Well, they also gave you like they also gave you they also gave you more work than you can do in a typical eight hour day. So what does that mean? That means it's no longer a typical eight-hour day because the work still has to get done. So they gave you the more, they gave you the raise, and people will say, "Well, well, of course, you know, you know what you're getting into because they're they're giving you the reward. They're giving, they're compensating you for the pain." But so those are fascinating questions because are they compensating you en <laughs> enough for you to sacrifice 
that soccer game that you wanted to go to with your kid? Or are they compensating you enough for the fact that since you can't do it, your spouse now has to cut back on his or her work to do it? So to, to take care of those responsibilities. Or is it compensating you enough for the fact that you've decided to not have kids because those kids would then take away from your capacity to be the ideal worker. So those are the kinds of fascinating questions for me. And I feel lucky in some ways that I can spend my time focusing on those kinds of puzzles. But they also have, I mean, I think they're also appealing because they have consequences for the answers to those questions actually inform the way people like live their lives right so that's why it's such a popular topic people love talking about this because it's like yeah that happens to me all the time <laughs> like i don't know why i don't feel better about the flexibility i hear that all like i can't quite figure out why i don't feel better about it you know i don't feel i don't feel like i've my conditions have improved and so it's almost like well let's put that under a microscope and understand what the flexibility let's unpack it and understand what comes with it. Who are the workers you're studying? Everybody. We study everybody, yeah. So we study the whole range of... Um, so, you know, in some cases, you know, you could be looking at lawyers, which is a very high-status kind of occupation. But even among lawyers, for example, if you just set them aside, like the... Um, the the dynamics related to sort of the power track or, the, you know, that there's so much pressure. There's so much pressure. And so it's a highly rewarding, highly compensated occupation. And yet within that, why don't certain things pay off the way you'd expect them to pay off? And a lot. And again, the, the thing to keep in mind here is because um, I hear this critique in some ways. A lot of people wouldn't give up authority. A lot of people wouldn't give up the extra ten thousand dollars. But it's it's more of a it's more of like shedding and a, a shedding new light or an awareness on why the why the rewards don't feel quite as good as they were maybe expected to feel or touted as like oh here's the flexibility, but yeah we study we do we do. Um, Mainly, I've been doing nationally representative samples of workers. So, like the National Study of the Changing Workforce, the main idea is that they try to get a broad cross section of industries, sectors, self employed, people working for nonprofits, people working um, for for profit, um, government workers, and so forth. And then people across all levels of education, income. We're probably not getting like many of the super rich and we're not getting people that are at the very low end of the scale and that's an issue that people start you know you struggle with that but um we're getting all kinds of different occupations um and so, so who are the happiest most engaged <laughs> workers and who are the least happy or the unhappiest least engaged i would say that the the happiest workers the ones that are most satisfied are the ones that tend to have greater levels of challenge, interesting work, fulfilling work, and I'd say also work that is they feel, they perceive is fairly compensated. If and if not as fairly compensated, then has a lot of good benefits. So like um that pays well or pays appropriately or you know is um is um People feel like they're getting what they deserve. So would lawyers fit in that? Uh... Well, that's a good question. I think generally, and you know, again, that the other big thing about that is um, I think the extent to which feeling 
underpaid hurts um, is how can I say this the extent of of the degree to which feeling underpaid hurts depends on what people are actually making. So in some ways, lawyers probably wouldn't be as affected by feeling underpaid because they're so they're earning quite a lot. So it'd be maybe more of a blow to their ego, but not a blow to their needs. Whereas somebody at the lower end who's not earning very much and feels under rewarded, it's actually a question of needs. Like I need I need this to be able to pay the bills and you know. So I'd say the happiest workers is a good question. I'd say basically the 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 four C blueprint tries to get at this, where workers who have control, workers who who feel a sense of challenge and commitment, those kinds of those kinds of work attributes and connection really um, enhance quality of working life. And so that's why I sort of start off with this blueprint because. The whole notion of disengagement actually suggests all of those things are absent in a workplace. And so if you have a disengaged worker, you have an unhappy worker, you have a worker who's not loyal, who's probably going to leave. So what's the opposite of that? Well, control, challenge, commitment, and connection really are the, the main pieces. That's another episode of Planet Artsai in the Books. My thanks to sociologist Scott Scheman for taking the time out of his busy work day to talk about his work about work. You can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Scheman UT. That's Scott S C H I E M A N U T. Planet Artsai has been brought to you by the letters A and S at the University of Toronto. I'm Barrett Hooper, and you can follow me on Twitter at Planet Artsai. Thanks for listening.